Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On this episode of the New Statesman podcast, Stephen and I discuss Lee Kane's resignation from Downing Street, and you ask us, will more councils go bankrupt? Now Croydon Council has gone bankrupt. So Boris Johnson's Director of Communications, Lee Kane, has resigned. And this is amid reports of internal tensions in Downing Street between staffers there. And we've had a lot of questions from our listeners not only about what's going on, but why they should care about this. So, Stephen, can you give us an overview, first of all, of of what's actually happened? Right. So Lee Kane, who is the Director of Communications at Downing Street, has announced he will step down at the end of the year after kind of a 48-hour period in which he has variously been described as being set to become Boris Johnson's new Chief of Staff, set to stay where he is. Why does this matter So I guess my read is I don't think it matters as much as people think. But the crucial thing about Boris Johnson is obviously he's incredibly advisor led, as we've discussed before on the podcast, as we've, you know, written in the poll call, one of the kind of regular sort of like things and like when civil servants will like mimic like meetings they've had to sit in on is what they do describe as the like, of course, of course, Boris like agreement to someone. So they were meeting about the economy and someone will say something like, but of course, you know, We've got to like level up and deliver for the the towns and voted for us in the fir- for the first time ever in 2019. Go, of course, of course, mm-hmm. level up, level up. And then like Rishi Sunak will say something like, or you know, indeed, actually, before Sajid Javid would say like, but you know, we've we've got to make sure that taxes remain as low as possible. And they'll go, like, of course, of course, taxes, <laughs> taxes must remain as low as possible. We're the party of entrepreneurs. And then like the chief secretary of the treasury, whether it was Rishi Sunak or Steve Barclay, as it now is, will we'll go, but you know, we've got to make sure that we continue to, well, continue to suggest a great level of success at targeting the, the debt and deficit that has actually been the case. But they will, they will then say, of course, we've got to continue to target the deficit and pay down the debt. Go, of course, of course, the debt, sound money, sound money. And at the end of the meeting, everyone's like, so what is our fiscal policy exactly? This is why like the advisors are so important. Because mm. one of the questions we've had is like, wait, why does Boris Johnson rate this guy so much that he was willing to offer him this job that caused other people to revolt? Like, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, because he's a people pleaser, and yeah, I actually do think Euroscepticism is one of the things that he does actually have a genuine emotional connection to. Because like, beyond like a handful of policy areas, he, he he's a you know, people pleaser and he doesn't really do much kind of 
deciding there was an element of you know like lee's been loyal to me he stuck with me when i'd stepped down as foreign secretary and everyone was like writing me off and my readers with long memories will will notice just how much absolving of my own blame there i was with the sentence everyone <laughs> everyone including me was going ah yeah and he's sick of him he's, he's on the trash heap right he has this kind of incredible like thing of going and i mean incredible not necessarily in a positive way being like oh you know so and so has been loyal to me i have to be loyal to them now, the reason why this matters is within Downing Street, within the context of that incredibly like directed PM, you essentially have an argument at the moment about whether or not this Downing Street should like revert back to a kind of David Cameron-y, I love Thatcherism, but I also think that well-paid ethnic minorities should be able to feel relaxed about voting for it, more kind of like economisty style conservatism of a type than Boris Johnson, sort of also kind of articulated as mayor of London, versus the ones who are like, you know, we need to stick with the approach that we've had since, arguably since 2019, arguably since 2016, yeah, that's how we get results. That's how we, we win. And the reason why this matters is then basically because the kind of main net winner of it is the PM's new press secretary, Allegra Stratton, who will be doing the televised briefings and will therefore be the face of the government. OK, so notionally, she is not the new director of communications. In reality, I don't see how you can do that job well unless you are the PM's most important communications advisor. And it, it means that someone who is broadly seen as being aligned with the like, let's be a bit more like the City Hall days, let's be a bit more like the David Cameron era, replaces someone who, as an ally of Dominic Cummings, an alumni of Vote Leave, was more in the like, let's have the 2019 approach. And that is one of the reasons why it is important. I guess that's basically the core reason why it's important. The other kind of reason that's more contested is whether or not this has implications for the important Brexit decisions the government has to make this week about whether or not it is going to concede in order to get a deal or if it is going to go for no deal. I think that is less important because my analysis of Boris Johnson's, you know, kind of thought and actions based on a depressingly long amount of time, it's made me feel very old when I think about it, of observing and and covering him, is that I think Euroscepticism is actually one of the things that he himself has genuine reactions to and therefore who his advisors are is less important on that and he's going to do what he's going to do however of course I could be wildly wrong about that and we could look back on this as the moment when a no deal Brexit became significantly less likely because of the shifting balance of power within Downing Street. That's really interesting. But one of the first things that I thought when I heard the news was that, because, you know, a lot of people, including some of our listeners, have asked, why should I care about this? And at first it does seem, and Labour is, of course, framing it rightly so, to seem like it's sort of chaos within Downing Street and they care more about sort of their factional infighting than, than the reality of what's going on in the country at the moment that actually affects people's lives. But I would say this does affect people's lives because what we do know about this particular Downing Street you know, and others in the past is that communications is extremely important to them. And, and, you know, I've heard civil servants say that this particular number 10 operation really care about the enduring image of things that they, they do and say. They do rely a lot on spin to try and sell their sort of their vision, but also individual policies too. And so it, it shows the importance of communications to this government and how it wants to use them in future, that they would have a, a semi-public row about it. And I think that 
basically, if you do base your governance, like this particular operation are doing on campaigning rather than governing, which I think has been sort of the balance so far, then these kind of disputes do matter. And it shows that you are putting personnel and struggles over personnel and power struggles in that area over policy matters, then it then it shows sort of where your priorities are. So I think it is important for people who, you know, who are asking, why should I care, that they know what this government's priorities are and the way it leads with campaigning over governing, if you see what I mean. I think one of the reasons why so many of our listeners have asked, you know, why why do I care and why so many people in, in our free fun and free morning email replied today being like, oh, thanks, I didn't understand this. And now I do kind of get why it's a thing is um, to, you know, mount one of my regular hobby horses. Right. A consequence of the fact that the BBC in particular, it's not so much is bad at covering policy, but kind of almost actively doesn't really want to and doesn't try is then a lot of the coverage of this is kind of being completely free of and here is the thing about which these people actually disagree. It would be a bit like trying to cover, which I guess actually in terms of the way people talk about it, clearly people did cover it a lot, like trying to cover like the divisions between Blair and Brown and the role of Ed Balls in like the 97 to 2001 period without ever being like, by the way, there's this thing called the Euro and we may or may <laughs> not join it. And these various people disagree about whether or not we we join it. I do think, as you say, the fact that the communications director has become kind of the vector of that sums mm. up the distinct problem of kind of communications-driven policy that this government has, which is, a, I mean, I'm not going to say it's a phrase in this person coin, but it's a phrase that I personally have stolen from when you kind of talk to kind of like Cameron era or May era Downing Street people, the thing they will continually complain about is how much communications driven policy they think this lot has, mm. right down to yeah you know, the fact that like the the tax and spend policy is like broadly like what does the focus group say? They say they want love the NHS and they hate tax rises, and because no one in Downing Street really understood the economic implications of what Satch Javid was asking them to do when he went, by the way, we should still pay down the deficit. They ended up with this like extra pledge that just makes everything else so much more difficult. And because, of course, as we have seen, Rishi Sunak is like, you know, his politics aren't the same, but it comes out to, because I think it's, it's not just communications, basically, it's like, it's like a politics of kind of personal interaction, right? Which is why there's so much cronyism in the hiring of key jobs. It's why... Now, obviously, Rishi Sunak is hugely qualified to be Chancellor. There's you know, a reason why when I did that exercise where I went round asking like a bunch of treasury spads of both parties, a bunch of civil servants, yada, 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 like, yeah, a bunch of people who like knew their stuff, like, you know, kind of like, who are the people in the parliamentary parties who could be chancellor or shadow chancellor like there is a reason why Rishi Sunak was on everyone's list and Ed Miliband was on everyone's list but like there is a reason why Rishi Sunak met that criteria but the reason why Downing Street convinced themselves that he would be a better option for them than Sadie Javid was just to be like oh well Rishi is polite and like kind of congenial that must therefore mean that he doesn't have the same views about the debt and the deficit and of course he does and so like now it's like oh so you have the same policy problem but you've convinced yourself that because he's a bit nicer to you this will be the will be different and it's it's not different at all and that is the story of Dido Harding being there it's the story of all of these kind of like oh it turns out and like this person is cursorily connected to someone in in this Downing Street because that's just the approach now, I don't think that problem will change, even if 
the end result of this is the the government becomes a lot more kind of Zach Goldsmithy, David Camerony, yeah, however you want to dis- describe it. If the end result of this is Dom Cummings either leaving or falling out of influence completely, and Carrie Simons becoming more influential, and this therefore being a government which talks a lot more about the environment and climate change, and a lot less about culture wars, what won't change, I think, is the incredible clannishness at the heart of it. I think that's spot on. I think some of the excitement about the Lee Kane news was from people, particularly sort of media commentators or people in the sort of remain or what was previously remain circles in politics, getting excited and asking, does this mean the end of sort of vote leaves dominance over the number 10 operation? But like we've just been talking about, the fact that Boris Johnson's style is very much sort of communications driven policymaking, you know, chummy networks and also very advisor heavy and also as you say his genuine commitment to Euroscepticism I can't see those people's sort of hope that the Cummings era is over and that kind of vote leave style of politics has been left behind entirely because it comes from a place doesn't it it comes from that kind of Johnsonian view of politics, which is, you know, as long as I speak enough about this thing and make it sound funny and optimistic enough, then then in my head it's happened, you know, <laughs> and the difficult policymaking can be done by someone else or, or can be done later or can not come at all. Um, so I do think people, maybe perhaps the, some of the excitement around this story was was misplaced for people who have been concerned about that certain group's influence on, on the heart of government. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right to identify, right, that the, the groups that were getting very excited were like, you know, journalists, because like all industries, we love talking about ourselves, mm-hmm. and kind of Remainer conservatives, whether they are still currently conservatives or they are ex-conservatives who you know, maybe voted Lib Dem or Renew or for one of the independents, right? but like that type of person kind of being like, oh, maybe I can get back in the water again. And then you have the kind of friends of Simon's who obviously is, you know, herself a kind of like high powered advisor and, and, and political strategist in her own right. So you have like her media allies doing their kind of like, oh, my sources might be in the ascendant. Mm-hmm. And I think then exactly as you say, then like the, the thing about Cummings's approach that really doesn't fit is Cummings is not a we all come together, I'm gonna talk very sunshiny, right? Like and then people put this I think exactly right a couple of weeks ago to me. They said the important difference between the two of them is when all of the statue stuff was happening and the Coulston statue got pulled off, the Prime Minister, sorry, pulled down. You can't pull off a statue and this is a family podcast. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, you know, when the, the, the Coulston statue was pulled down, the Prime Minister said nothing and his kind of essential view is like, yeah, he was a, he's very much in the like, well, you know, oh, it's obviously bad, but not like that. But when the Churchill statue happened, he immediately was like, no, 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 you can't pull down the Churchill statue because that is a, you know, effectively a 70, 80% proposition. And it's it's discussing 80% propositions where he can go like, aren't we great? Aren't we lovely? Don't we all come together? Then this prime minister is at his most happy and comfortable. Whereas for Dom Cummings, he is at his most happy and comfortable when he's arguing about well, 52, 48% propositions where he can go, they're bad, we're good, oh, these liberals, oh, these people. I mean, although Boris Johnson is actually in some ways quite shy, he's not someone who delights in going up to an MP and going, I don't even know who you are. And I think then whether it's this week, next week, next year, the reason why to me the Johnson-Cummings relationship is just never going to last is that 
you can't have an enduring political alliance between someone who wants to be liked and someone who basically seems to believe that being disliked is the same as passing legislation. <laughs> but you're right. And the thing that like most conservative Remainers don't like, which is the kind of way that this is a sort of governance-free project, ain't going to change because that is baked into the prime minister. What will change is, I think, you know, whether or not this is a successful regeneration or not, as I think that by the end of this parliament, I just cannot conceive of a situation where Boris Johnson's government has not become more of a like, we're great, you're awesome, I love Britain, I love you, I love cities, I love lamps, and less of a, I hate so-and-so, we've got to beat so-and-so. But it doesn't mean it will be a more effective governing project than it is now. It just means that it will be, although actually, I, I mean... I also will say, I think actually, I wouldn't underestimate the importance of having a more cohesive, less abrasive message that I think does make it easier for any politician who comes afterwards, whether they want to do something radical on the left or from the right or from the centre, it will be easier for them if they are coming after four years of aren't we plucky and great than four years of aren't we divided and horrible. No, there's there's an important difference between those two things, even though like you say, they can be two sides of the same coin in that you're either putting fighting or uniting over actually doing anything of substance. Tone is, is really important. And if this is the beginning of a change to that tone, then then I do think that it could be a good thing. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. And our question today is, will other councils soon follow Croydon in declaring bankruptcy? Now, Anoush, Croydon Council is actually one of the ones you predicted might do this. So just talk us through what's happened. Yes. So the news is that Croydon Council in South London, Labour run, has issued a Section 114 notice, which essentially is the equivalent of a council filing for bankruptcy. Councils can't actually go bankrupt because they have to continue spending on their statutory duties. So that's things like protecting children and adult social care. But for all intents and purposes, it can't make it its budget add up. It has a budget black hole of £66 million. And while it's saying that this is down to, you know, the difficulties of funding its coronavirus response, and obviously councils have been under a lot of financial pressure, not just this year, but in the sort of 10 preceding years because of the way that their central government funding has been cut due to the austerity agenda. There are other 
factors that seem to have been a part of Croydon's downfall. So its own auditors actually last month criticised the council for ignoring financial warnings for for more than three years. And this really reminds me of, of the story of Northamptonshire Council, which is the most recent before today council to go bankrupt in February 2018, where there were sort of idiosyncratic problems with the way that it was run. That was a Tory run council. And, you know, they'd been criticised as well for the way that they managed their finances. So with council bankruptcy stories, you have to always be careful to note the individual things that, that went wrong in that individual council, rather than just chalking it up to a trend. But, and I think it's really important to make this point, A lot of councils are facing huge budget black holes that they just cannot fill at the moment because of coronavirus. At the beginning of the crisis, Robert Jenrick said that he would fund whatever was necessary for councils to be able to respond adequately to to the pandemic. But that hasn't been delivered on. And uh, lots of council leaders on all sides see that as a broken pledge. And so in June, I wrote about this. And that was the piece in which I said that Croydon was one of the ones that was looking very shaky and on the edge of a section 114. But there's also other councils, very different councils, Norfolk County Council, for example, in other parts of the country that could be facing the same fate. And one of the big things that they always tell you when you speak to finance officers or councillors in councils is that they just don't have any certainty. They want the government to say, this is how much money you've got to play with in the next X number of years. And because we never have sort of comprehensive spending reviews or or anything anymore, it seems, (laughs) they just can't get that certainty. And just drip feeding, you know, a few million here and there when you announce something new that you want councils to help you to do doesn't help with that essential problem. And that's something that they've been struggling with long before the pandemic as well. This all sounds very technical and nerdy. So I should say this has a big effect on real people's lives. So when Northamptonshire went went bankrupt, I went there and did a piece about basically what it means for residents when a council goes bankrupt. And I went to go and report on one library's closure as a case study because 21 libraries in the county were closed after the bankruptcy. And it was having a huge impact on people's lives. Libraries aren't just places where people get books to read. They're places where you get your benefits sorted out. They're places where you might have your only social event for the entire week at a tea morning or a coffee morning. And um, people were really, really devastated. And, and they, you know, there were children's groups and as well as social groups that people used to rely on and couldn't get to anymore. So it has it has a big impact. And in terms of the councils like Croydon that are suffering from disastrous sort of coronavirus black holes, the services that fall away, which aren't the statutory services, are the ones that you need in place for a pandemic response to work. So rough sleeping programmes, domestic abuse support, The maintenance of public parks, you know, that's been really important this year. And also fitness and leisure, which are really important, particularly in the aftermath of a pandemic, to make sure that people are healthy, but also mentally healthy by spending time with other people in their their communities. All of those things fall away when a council can't spend money on non-statutory services anymore. So this isn't just a boring local government story. This is a a story about people's day-to-day lives. You talked about Northamptonshire and your your visit there. Now, my understanding is in some ways these stories are quite similar because Mm. although Northamptonshire Council was conservative run it was similarly a council where there were 
broader underlying issues that kind of came to a head because of the national policy picture. And what happened last time, basically, was that although there were specific Northamptonshire issues, the then government basically went, oh dear, we've been running this a bit too close to the wire and put more money into the overall system. Am I correct in understanding that? Yeah, it was something like that. I mean, they'd spent a huge amount of money on these glossy new offices, which I remember going to see someone took, a a disgruntled official took me to go and see them at the time. So the kind of big question, I guess, is, is, do you think that this is Northamptonshire over again, where the government will go, okay, right, it's time for a change of approach? Or do you think this is going to be more, I mean, obviously, it's serious for everyone in Croydon, it's serious for everyone in Northampton. But do you think this is more likely to be the beginning of a systemic problem this time around? Or do you think this will kind of have the same kind of canary in the coal mine effect? as Northamptonshire did. I was going to say that quote, it was it was sort of labelled the canary in the coal mine because people assumed that it was the first in a long time, but it wasn't going to be the last because of the state of council finances, mainly because at the time the cost of social care was squeezing the amount that councils could spend on other services anyway. When you add the huge burden of coronavirus spending on top of that, it makes me think that it's even more likely that Croydon and Northamptonshire won't be the first, even though they did have their own individual problems. And the reason for that is that even people who you speak to who do not think that you know austerity was was a bad thing to do and did think that public services should be scaled back so right wing conservative mp's and conservatives on councils even they say that they believe that these councils won't be the first so it's not just trying to create a narrative that austerity has has wrecked local government and now it's all falling apart it is you know genuinely thought to be a risk so i remember going to interview one of the northamptonshire mp's tory mp andrew lewer who is you know he's he's not on the center or the left of the party and he was predicting more councils collapsing in two or three years time that interview was in september in 2018 the same year that northamptonshire went bankrupt and he was right you know i mean obviously there are other circumstances but but he was right that did happen and if someone like him was predicting it And if people I've spoken to privately on other councils during this pandemic think that it's round the corner, then I I don't think that Croydon is going to be the last. However, if the government does completely change its approach to funding and also providing certainty to local government, then, then that's a way to save them from this kind of fate. But they just have a blind spot when it comes to local government, as far as I can tell. They just, you know, you can see it in the contact tracing and other kind of responses, food vouchers and things they just don't seem to notice that there's a network of locally plugged in people and services that can deliver all of these things in a much more efficient way than outsourcing these contracts to private companies can do I think you're exactly right about them seeing it in a different way and then the difference between Northamptonshire is although obviously it happened under Theresa May it was the product of the 2010 to 15 period where obviously the bulk of the cuts actually happened when it was just easier to cut local government because it was mm. not it wasn't as immediately obvious why it was a problem and as the the lag showed you could you could get quite a lot of money out of it before the consequence of those cuts started to become electorally and politically salient Whereas the difference is, is the reason why this is happening now is because this Downing Street doesn't respect local government and is instinctively centralising. And I think that does make it slightly less likely than now than like the warning signs are happening again, that they won't go, okay, whoops. And I think 
yeah, it just feels more likely than they'll like try kind of to like, it's a labor problem. And then maybe if, I can't be saying maybe if we're lucky, then when a conservative council goes past, <laughs> the problem will be fixed. But I guess that is kind of like where I'm at. The question I have is that in terms of the sort of other issue of the day, which is then, yeah, because we do have kind of a reminder that this will end at some point with the positive vaccine news, mm. we will once again be back in a politics of what about these debts? What should we do about it? austerity versus trend growth yeah all that kind of stuff but it's hard to see how local government could pay for austerity again you know we are just without uh, having a major sort of government and state capacity issues in a way even more acute than the decade of austerity we've just had what to you do you think in terms of you know your kind of your britain hat on what to Mm. you is the kind of um the next big fight in terms of you know if you were rishi sunak and you probably can't try and hide it by local councils do you think there's anything left or do you think then broadly it's just then whatever set of cuts there are next will just be much more immediately and obviously painful than the the last set were it's a really good question because like you say and like every, you know, everyone who's seen the state of their public services would say it doesn't seem like it's possible to cut any more from local government without making it even more painful for people's lives and making it even more obvious that you're doing something to make life worse for, for people. But having said that, I wrote a piece um, towards the beginning of this pandemic that basically said that the government was already using austerity in the response to coronavirus via its lack of funding for for local government. And I think that's still true because you can see it was a really good example when they announced that they wanted councils to recruit COVID marshals to impose the new restrictions. I think it was when the rule of six came in. I can't remember which exact rule it was for. And they had no plan, absolutely no plan for spending any extra money on it. There was a big embarrassment, you know, comms embarrassment where they said, oh, councils will have to find their own money for this. But then they went back on it because the Tory councillors were tweeting about how ridiculous it was to suggest that councils had some spare money down the back of the sofa to, to fund this thing. You can just see that it's not at the front front of their minds. You know, it may not even be on purpose, but just the idea of giving councils funding to do the duties that they need to do just doesn't seem to be in the government's sort of playbook at all so so i would say that already austerity in terms of council cuts or non forthcoming council spending is already the government's response to trying not to spend as much money as 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 is needed on this crisis so i stick by i stick by the piece that uh, that i'd already written and you can see from the black holes that that councils have in their budgets that haven't been anywhere near filled from from the funding that's that's come in so far another good example of the sort of spin over actual substance in terms of local government funding is when they kept saying during the free school meals the most recent free school meals debate oh well councils have been given all this hardship funding well actually that hardship funding was intended to be spent within 12 weeks and specifically not to overlap with funding food vouchers so that was that was nothing to do with funding meals for for children over the holidays so you can see that they just sort of I don't know what it is but it's it's just a blind spot and I do think that 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 austerity mindset even if not in in as dramatic practice is still there You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague Stephen Bush. Alva Ray is on a well-deserved break. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening.
Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.